this episode of the podcast, Jared doubles our audience by becoming a listener. I find a way to make vomitoriums relevant to the conversation, and our guest takes us down a rabbit hole of protest porn. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm Paul Tulin. And this is the best pandemic ever. Welcome back to the best pandemic ever, part two with Jamie Mustard, Jared Nichols, and Paul Tu... Paul Tu... How do you pronounce this? You've been waiting all week to do that, haven't you? (laughs) It's a a difficult name to pronounce. It's the Irish, I think. Do I need to pronounce it with an accent? Up yours. You don't pronounce it phonetically. Yeah, no, seriously, this is exciting, guys. It's our first part two, and it's a great part two because this was Jamie Mustard. You know, I will go ahead and confess that I do periodically go back and listen to our own podcast. Just, I just want to, you know, and I have to say, I went back and listened to the, to part one and really enjoyed it. I was able to uh, remove myself, and I thought, man, those those two hosts, if they weren't there, this would be an amazing podcast. But you know, there's got to be some filler, so you know, so it was it, so, so it would have been better. You listen to it. I did, yeah. No, no, I thought it was great. I listened to it, and the analytics said there were two listeners. I was very excited. <laughs> oh, oh, well, hey, mate, you know what, though? But it was still two listeners. The numbers don't lie. So let's go with that. We can make our own story. So, Jamie, welcome back, really, man. I have a really hard time listening to myself. Like I, When I did the radio show, I would wait six weeks, and then I could hear it. It would yeah. be – yeah, so because um, – so – yeah, maybe I'll start again, but uh, oh, yeah, I tried, it takes I tried, me a little time. Listening too. to myself, it's like, I don't know, talking to chalkboard. Well, I, you know, here's the reason why hey, I think hey. it's enjoyable. Paul, hey. <laughs> Paul, Paul has the best show. Hey, hey. Yes. So if you all are wondering if Jamie's just having a random outburst, you know, uh, you know, it, it's not. Uh, it's very intentional. Uh, Jamie is protesting our speech. And uh, we will probably talk about some of that as well. And so nicely done, Jamie. It's completely thrown my train of thought off. Yeah, I was just thinking about, and I know we're going to get into all sorts of stuff today, but I was just thinking today about my my grandparents, you know, who grew up in the segregated South under Jim Crow. My grandmother grew up in the same town and went to the same school as Alex Haley. My aunt was his friend. They all remained friends uh, till he died. He gave me a copy of Roots when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. That's awesome. That he signed, you know, yeah. to me with, with brotherly love. And uh, just, you know, my grandmother died a few years ago. It's what brought me back to Oregon. She retired here from New York. Uh, both my grandfather and my great uncle were Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, my my uh, grandfather was a flight surgeon during World War II, black flight surgeon. They both went to black. My grandmother and my grandfather met at a black medical school. And just, you know, and I was joking with that hey, hey, ho, ho thing only because I think they would, my grandmother would be, you know, mortified if she saw what's going on in the streets today. And, you know, to, in what, how, how black people got their rights in the 60s was through passive resistance, was mm-hmm. through what uh, Gandhi had taught works, right? And so just, you know, I, so I just think that, you know, cutting people off, not letting them speak and just assaulting them with uh your whatever your thoughts are just how far yeah how a how far we've come and b uh it's not it's not effective we know it's effective we know what works unless you're gonna have an all-out civil war which is not gonna happen 
the only thing that is proven to work and create change over time is passive resistance. Right. right. So it, it, begs a, it begs a question. You know, I always like to think about, I mean, based on conversations we'd have before, I always like to think about how did we get to a hey, place, hey. right? There's going to be an hour of that. <laughs> All right, sorry. You right? guys, you guys, you guys, uh, I, you guys sent me down this strange pathway of uh, with my conversation last time. I went, I just got really inspired by all the social things we were talking about, and I went on this rabbit hole on the internet of protester porn. So you guys have me all fired up for this episode. I apologize. I will, I will calm down. Yes. So you know where? So, so right. It's it's a question of how do we get there, right? And I wonder. I think a lot of it has to do with impatience. I think we've developed a, a, a society through instant gratification, two-day delivery, where people just un, don't understand that change takes time, especially you know in the United States, it's designed to take time. We talked about this you, you know a little earlier. Jared and I were talking before you came on um, how the system that we live in deliberately traded stability for speed, right? So. We don't allow for a lot of quick changes in our system because if we do that, that could destabilize it. So I wonder, like, how do people get to the point where they're so frustrated that they just think, I'm just going to I'm just going to disrupt everything and that's going to get me what I want. I, you know, that's the question that that I think about. How did we get there? Why do they think that is going to be valuable and useful? Uh, well, I don't think they do. I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily agree um, with your characterization. I don't think it's about instant gratification, um, and I don't think it's about two-day delivery, but I do think it has to do with the Internet. And it kind of actually goes to a point in my book. What I think we're seeing and um, is what I would call, and I, I don't think I'm the only one that would say this, uh, narcissistic virtue signaling, signaling. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, narcissistic virtual signaling. And I think it actually ties into my book. You know, my book is The Primal Laws Will Cause Anything to Stand Out. So the, why do we pay attention to one thing and discard another? And I basically uh, codified these primal laws that explain that. Um, and, uh, but the first third of the book, before I get into the primal laws of how you grab attention in a world overloaded with content, is I talk about this concept in the book called dilution. And dilution means is the, the wave of messaging and information has gotten massive and stronger. We have gotten smaller and we can feel it. It creates an angst. And um, uh, let me give you an example of what dilution means in the real world. Can I just go on about this? Oh, yeah, do, please do. Okay. All right. So say you were um, a uh, radio host, okay, back in 1950 in a small town in the Midwest. By the way, the well, book is called The Iconist. Like, uh, just so anybody listening, he's talking about his book, The Iconist. And yesterday was the one-year anniversary. Congratulations. Okay. All right, continue on. The Owl Award winning. Outstanding works of literature, award-winning iconist. Okay, wonderful. Um, uh, yeah. So the yeah. So to kind of go back to my point, um, uh, this concept. Of, say you had a radio show in 1950, and you just kind of were walking around, doing, living your life, doing your job as a as a disc jockey. You were hit with about 250 advertising messages a day. By 1970, that was 500. By 1998, the last time anybody's truly tried to study it, it was up to five to 7,000 advertising messages a day. This is before the internet was in full swing, okay? We were just getting warmed up with the internet in 1998. In fact, a woman who was doing research for Microsoft and Apple in 1998 named Linda Stone 
coined the term continuous partial attention to describe how we were being bombarded with so much attention that we were only partially paying attention now. Okay, so what that means, and then, okay, now with social media in 2007, 2008, the erupting of that and that peaking in 2011, 2012, estimates are as high as 10 to 15,000 advertising messages a day. You couldn't process a thousand. But, you know, to go, and, I can, and there's actual mental effects from that, and I hope you guys will bring me back to kind of outlining what the mental effects of that are, because it, it goes to this narcissistic virtue signaling. Uh, but when I, there's lots of books out there about information overload. What I'm trying to talk about with dilution is this concept of if everyone around you is not paying attention because they're distracted by all this messaging coming at them, what does that do to you? What does that do to you in terms of your ability to feel like you have a voice in the world, your ability to express yourself? I've been working with this, these ideas, these laws, beta testing it, I mean, 13 years, something like that. And I remember eight, nine years ago, I was giving a talk at Tektronics. And I thought the only people that are going to never understand my work, and this is, I'm going to bring this back to what I think is going on right now. The only people that are going to never understand my work are millennials and Gen Zs. And because they've grown up in this information bubble, this information overload. So they're, they don't know anything else. So I'm going to start talking about, hey, 1950 or 1970 or 1998 versus today. And they're going to be like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Okay, so I started talking about that, this talk of Tektronics, and uh, it was a, a big kind of small uh, business expo that they were hosting. So there were all these booths, and it was a big open space, and there were politicians talking. It was my turn, and, and uh, it was being, uh, um, all the volunteers were high school students and college freshmen, okay? And uh, they were coming at the back of the room and around, and I started talking about this concept of dilution and the angst that comes along with it. And I saw these millennials start to migrate to the front of the room. And when I came off stage, they, they all came at me. What are you talking about? Right? And I had this, uh, this kind of oh my God moment where I thought, oh, oh no. They don't only feel it. They feel it more than anyone. Right? Mm -hmm. So you have a generation of kids. If you look at the age of the people that are out there protesting, right? Um, aside from the fact that most of them are not black, which is a whole other issue we can talk about, right? Yeah. But, but uh, you're talking about people that have grown up in a society where there's so much information going on around them, they don't feel like they have a voice. As all we've had all this connectivity, all this electronic connectivity, um, we have less and less physical connectivity because it's just time, right? So if I'm connecting with you electronically, I'm not connecting with you physically, right? And there's actual mental effects that occur from not affecting with each other physically. You've had 200,000 years of human evolution, one to 200,000 years, depending on who, uh, who you talk to. And we've had 300 years of, uh, uh, of uh, kind of modern life, less. You could say the Industrial Revolution, 100 years, 1880 with that second Industrial Revolution. Uh, but we've only had 25, 20 years of this super electronic connectivity out of hundreds of 100,000. 150,000, right? So we're not used to, or we're not made to be interacting with each other uh, through devices. We're made to have human contact. We're made to be in nature. And I think that, that a lot of what we're seeing is A, a the mental effects of the disconnectivity. And you can see that in teen, pre teen and preteen depression rates going through the roof, teen and preteen suicide rates going through the roof. 
Uh, but but it's also um, a matter of these kids feeling like there's so much information going on around them uh, that they do not have a voice and they're not going to know if they're going to have a voice. So then you get this movement going in the streets and uh, they could, there's an instant tribe. They could, you're, nobody, you, you can get out away from COVID and you're instantly um, important and you're instantly belong. So I think it's a bunch of people that are searching for belonging in a human way and doing it just in a very twisted, wrong way based on bad information and manipulation. Hmm. I, I, so what I, so what I love about that entire explanation is we are essentially asking the same question. Not, we're not saying, you know, screw all these idiots. We're saying, why are they doing this? And if I can understand it, is there a way that I can somehow connect to them to address whatever it is? It's not that when you see those things, you're automatically saying, whatever they need is bullshit. They're right. just a bunch of what. It's not that. It's what is it? What is the issue? Where's the common ground that I can find with you? Because I don't want to just discard you because you're misguided. I want to figure out how do you get there so maybe I can understand it better. But how do you do that in an environment where they're not even allowing you the opportunity to say, hey, man, I, I hear you. I want to connect. What's going on? How can I help? Yeah, you know something, Dad. Can I add something hey, to there? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, nice. Oh, what was I gonna say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, talk, yeah. Talk, so talk, I think. Talk, I, I, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Brother. I'm sorry. No, this is good. So I think uh, what's really interesting about this too is that if you go back and you think about this generation you're t- talking about, and I really think it's more in this Gen Z, right? No, it's, I mean, it's millennials too. It's both. Like, so the I younger millennials. If you go out into the streets, it's Gen Z and millennials. If you go out and you look at who's protesting out there, I'm not saying there's no 50-year-old men out there. There are. There's people yeah, of sure. all ages out there. Yeah, yeah. And I think there are some very well-intentioned people out there on both sure. sides. Both sides. Oh. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a current North Carolina. Uh, no. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, but I do think the majority, at least here in Portland, uh Millennials and Gen Z. They're millennials and Gen Z. No question about it. Overwhelmingly. So here's here's something I find really interesting about that too. You know, and and this has been an area that has been captivating me. It's got a lot of my attention since the pandemic, really. And it's it's the uh, you know I I think I referenced this in the last conversation we had about Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I think it's a phenomenal book. Uh, But it's this idea of um, overprotection of our children you know now again my kids are six and nine so this they're not falling into this just yet but you know, everything that has been done to keep your kids quote unquote safe and you know this all started happening like around 2007 you know these these ideas coming out of academia too about uh emotional safety being the same as physical safety and just how people needed safe spaces which were defined in the way that i need a place where nobody's going to challenge my ideas well, you, you couple that with this overprotection and over-involvement of parents in the lives of their children between, I believe what Hype was saying was from those that were born in 1996 to 2013, or maybe it's 96, yeah, somewhere in that range there, is that there's just this overprotection and over-involvement in the lives of their children in a way that didn't really allow them to become anti-fragile. It made our kids fragile, right? Now, not every parent did this, but this is what led to I, this, uh, we're going to push back against anyone who might cause us emotional 
pain because that now equates to physical violence. It's the same thing in their mind. So it becomes this, okay, well, we, we start believing in, in these ideas that um, uh, if you say something I don't like, then that's hate speech. And hate speech is violence. And if it's violence, then I need to have a safe space where I'm not exposed to that violence, right? You know, there's all kinds of strange rationale unnecessarily complicating things that are not the same. Physical violence and emotional violence are not the same. And so you have kids now who don't know exactly what it is they want. So this is circling back to the, the end goal. Something I think you were alluding to, Jamie, is that, you know, because what Paul was saying is like, well, if I understood what it is that they want, then maybe, you know, here's something that we can do to help them. But like you, Jamie, I believe this is what you're going to say. Correct me if I'm wrong. But they're, they don't know what they want. They don't know what they want because they've never been in an environment to say, hey, this is what I want, right? They've been told what they should want, even from a young age. Well, no, 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 don't, don't do that because that's, that might be harmful. Don't do that. You might get hurt. No, 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 no. This is how you need to do it. If you want to get a good job, you need to go to this school. If you want to go to this school, you need to get good grades. So don't think like this. Think like this, like this overcoddling of our kids. And so now you have a bunch of them in the street who are not clear on what outcome it is that they're trying to achieve. It's more of just chaos and, and you know, we're going to just try to disrupt. I, I, think, I think that there's truth to that, but I think there's something fundamentally underlining it. I mean, what, what occurred to me as I listened to you was the timing again. 1996 to 2006, is that what you said? 2013 right? is what, if I could be quoting that wrong is, from Hyde's book, yeah. This is the rise of the internet and the peak mm -hmm. of social media in 2011 and 2012. I mean, yeah. just coincidentally, I mean, I'm realizing that as we're talking. Mm -hmm. Okay, So I think parents are distracted. I think parents have access to more information than they ever had in the previous history of the universe. They're distracted and overwhelmed by it. So part of what you're seeing is just that they can, it's like going on WebMD. They can get them stir. There's a million thousand articles on how they should be handling their kids. Whereas if you didn't have an internet, it would just be them and their kids. Right. You also have them not sitting there and spending time with their kids because people are on their devices. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's underneath of it is that this digital technology is breaking down the nuclear family and it's doing it like, because we talk about that happening in minority communities. You know, I mean, I grew up without a father and it's very common in uh, black communities, you know, people to grow up without a father. Um, but I, and so the, the breakdown of this nuclear family, right? I think the internet is undermining the nuclear family, even if the nuclear family is intact. And you know, one of the things, and I would go even further in terms of the undercut, right? I look at it from I like I'm I'm interested in the human patterns, the social patterns, and what I and thinking the best in people, right? So one of the things that I I mentioned in the book is I've, I've been real curious about this subject, and I I don't talk about it too much in the book, but I but I thought a lot about it. Um, uh, this concept of uh, social connectivity, meaning digital connectivity, which isn't social at all. It's not the same as meeting your bros for a basketball game, okay? And uh, the difference between that on our on our evolution, uh, then uh, uh, your know, physical connectivity and being with your friends. And uh, one of the things, so I, I feel like. Social connectivity is not connectivity, but it tricks us into think we're being connected when mm -hmm. we're actually more isolated than we've ever been. Okay, and one of the some some of the research I did in the book was uh, on. I was really interested in whatever what are the effects of extreme isolation. So I looked at some studies on that were done on supermax prisoners who undergo extreme isolation. They're in their cell 23 hours a day. They are deprived of light. They are deprived of green. 
They are deprived of fresh air. So there's, there is a super isolation that occurs in a supermax prison. And there, uh, have, there are these studies that show that there are common uh, mental effects from that. And here's what they are. Paranoia, rage, aggression, depression. And so it is my firmly held belief that partly what we're seeing instinctively um, is uh, the effects of feeling isolated. And that was only compounded by COVID, yeah. right? And then underneath that, I think you have a corporate media manipulating the crap out of it, okay? And, I, and, and so, so, so you have all these people that are isolated, they're feeling these lower level impressions of what are you seeing in the streets of Portland? Rage, paranoia, aggression, okay? Um, and uh, you have this corporate media, non-liberal media, there is no liberal media, there's only media for profit, okay, on these major cable networks. And they make money by having high ratings. What has high ratings? Trump has high ratings, that's why they run him 24 hours a day. They say they don't like him. Well, when I don't like somebody, I don't talk to him, and I don't talk about him. I detach and I go away. But that's not what they do because Trump gets ratings and Trump knows it. So he manipulates it by constantly saying crazy things that they feel like 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 with rabies. They got a report about okay? and I'm talking about, you know, the evening couple of the evening guys on, on CNN maybe, or MSNBC. Yeah. Um, so th there's that. But it's also the protests. COVID-19. These things have been stirred up and kicked up and made to seem far worse than they are, both of them. And they're horrible, okay? But they've been, but if you watch, you know, CNN and the way that they, they play these things on the nightly news, it's like a movie trailer for World War Z, right? So you have this, so you have this group of people within the society that already have a predisposition for rage, a predisposition for paranoia, a predisposition for aggression. And then you have this corporate media machine just churning it. And then you have COVID. And I just think that that is a very dangerous mixer, a very dangerous cocktail. And I think that that's more fundamentally what's going on than any sort of uh, sane, rational, or methodical way you could explain their thinking process or even their fragility for that matter. But I, I'm not saying that we haven't been coddling people, but I think it, um, but you, I'm saying that where it comes from, uh, uh, this extreme situation, uh, I, I, and I think I do think that maybe the the coddling could be. The no, you're right. It's not just one thing. That was it's it's combination. Paul, go ahead. So in that explanation, uh, I'm I'm pulling out three pillars. Right, one is you know corporate media. Um, one is the exacerbation. Masquerading as liberal media, which is a joke. Right, 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 right. Okay. We said that last time. You know, there is no corporate okay. media, no conservative okay, media, good. only okay. corporate media. All right. So there's corporate media, COVID. And then the third pillar of that that I'm not sure that I 100% agree with is the is the generational divide, because find me a generation in the human in the course of human history that was optimistic about the generation coming behind them, right? I think that you know the and there may be a different there certainly may be differences between the generations, um, but I don't know that it's exclusive just to that next generation, right? Because if you Look at, you know, look at parents in the 50s. Rock and roll was going to end the world. If you go probably go back to Rome, there was something about the next generation. They didn't, you know, they weren't they weren't using the best vomitoriums. I don't know. Whatever it was in Rome, <laughs> right? 
some, somebody's <laughs> always got somebody. Nobody has any optimism or faith in the next generation. I think that's a little, little bit of a red herring. Although I would agree with you that they seem disproportionately affected, but I don't know if they're disproportionately to blame for the. Oh, I, don't, I don't think they're to blame at all. They didn't invent the internet. We the yeah, internet rose. There was no regulation. There was no. There had. There still is no regulation. We never thought about what it was going to do to us. We never thought of how it was going to affect us. It's a huge theme in my book. Um, I don't. I, I, I believe me, Paul. I, I agree with you on the surface, and I think it's kind of. I think it's worth unpacking, and I'd be really curious if Garrett's view on this. Is of course I thought, and 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 I could be. And this could be it, because I've thought about it, exactly what you just said, which is, you know, I'm getting older. Maybe my whole view of this thing is, hey, get off my lawn. You know? <laughs> Damn right? kids. Like, like, look at the kids. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I, you know, the old man at Scooby-Doo, right? Um, like, nabbit. Uh, so uh, I have thought about that. But I, I think that um, there is a, uh, a paranoia to it. And uh, the the looting factor, the violence factor, the absolute unwillingness to the outrage factor, right? Um, the cancel factor. I think we're looking at something very, very new. Uh, the fact that you can hide behind a keyboard and make comments on the world or give your social opinions on quote so, unsocial media, dissocial media. Um, I think that that is uh, a new phenomenon and I think it will you know there's a incredible documentary that just came out on uh, everyone's talking about it on Netflix which addresses this oh the social dilemma yes it's yeah, very so, good yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I mean I'm talking about probably just different aspects because I'm talking about the, the fundamental change and what this is doing to this generation of kids but uh, I don't blame them at all I have compassion for them yeah I have compassion you know I go out and I talk to kids and all, all the time, you know, and I in my work and I and I say to them and one of the common things I'll say to kids if they're not responding to me is I'll say, how many people of you have angst about what's going to happen to you in the world? How many feel like you're not going to be able to have a voice? And 90 percent of the hands go up. I don't think that would have been true 25 years ago. So so I do think we're looking at something different. But I also but, but believe me, I have asked myself, I mean, is there some component of Hey, you young whippersnappers, you know, look at the way they're gyrating their hips as they listen to that guy with the slick black hair. Yeah, I, I think there's some some con some aspect of that. But I'm a person that's interested in social change. I'm a person that's interested in social justice. I'm an artist, so I'm pretty fluid. I mean, I'm for an, for an older guy, I'm right to be out there with them. And I'm I'm not the generate. I'm not the kind of person that's where, you know, that, that's not going to be want to be out there in the streets with them, and I'm disgusted. Hmm. And 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 so, yeah. How, how long do you think somebody can exist? So all of that becomes prob most problematic in a virtual space, right? The anonymity, the lack of kind of. How long do you think somebody can exist in that space before they have to step out eventually into the real world, and then and then have that human connectivity, that accountability? Um, because eventually, that's where that. And I don't. May, I, I think that's where that sort of self-corrects. When you actually have to take some step, life drives you to take a step to walk away from that bullshit. You go out, you get a job, you get whatever it is, you, you fall in love. You, somewhere along the line, you're going to have to get out in the real world. And then does that maybe start to self-correct that? Because now you've got some of that connectivity and now you've got to start to cope with that. 
Well, I think younger generations are having a harder time finding relationships, even though they're in school together, than they have in previous generations. Or ever, they're not getting their driver's licenses as younger, which is a statistic I think I saw on Social Dilemma. Um, I, I, I don't listen. I don't want to make I don't want to make it sound like I bag on the internet. I love the internet on a personal level. It's a lot, you know, um, it's a lot easier to research a book. Um, and to write the things that I write and to research the talks that I do uh, with having this massive array of information. What it's done for the democratization of, of uh, Earth or the democratization of information across Earth is staggeringly good, right? Um, if you look at the um, Arab Spring in 2011, 2012, most of those protests, that those protests for... Um, uh, democracy that we saw in the Middle East, uh, those those events were organized on Twitter and Facebook. Yep. Right. So it's it's a it's definitely not. I, and uh, and uh, and I, I mean, how can you not be overwhelmingly um, happy about that? You know, we want a, a society with freedom of information. When you have freedom of information, you're much more likely to have democracy. When you, when you're looking at the Arab Spring, because you have people in these countries that maybe they don't have running water in some of the, you know, some country, or maybe they have, you know, the, they have a horrible um, state news system, but they have a smartphone, right? So now you have the, these, these millions and millions of people living under the yoke of oppression where they have instant access to information. And what that tells me is that a lot of people that live under oppression, once they know for certain that they're, that and they, and they and they can share information in real time. We, you know, the Arab Spring tells me that a lot of people would rather die than live under the yoke of oppression once they can share it in real time and they know for certain. And so there is none of that without the internet. So I'm not I'm not saying that uh, it's it, you know I'm not trying to bag on the internet, I, but I am saying that um, it's we've got a some it's out of control. We, we have a problem here that it's kind of, that. It's the boiled frog, right? Someone's turned up the water and we're sitting in it and uh, people are talking about it, but we're not talking about it um, like it's a um, house on fire. Yeah. Well, you know, what I would think, I think it does come back to this narrative that we've all been uh, exposed to. I think that younger people have been exposed to it disproportionately. You know, the ones that have grown up in, you know, the internet age and have had all of this around them. Uh, it's this narrative of safety and it's this narrative that makes you, well, number one, maybe your parents aren't even really trying to help you understand the world because they're too busy on their phones. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Or, or, I mean, or all the other things that are distracting them. Or computers that, you know, well, think yeah. about it as a parent, right? You think about it as a parent, you're getting all this information too. And so you, the majority of what you're getting from the no, corporate media is like, I'm going to scare you to death about parenting. And so the exactly. parent's natural reaction is like, I'm going to ensure that my child is successful. And they def there's no definition about what exactly that means. But it goes to, well, that means they get into the right school. That means they get into college. They get good grades. They get a good job. You know, it's like they start over. And I they're, mean, made over they're made safe. They're made over Big safe. time. I mean, like one, uh, yeah. Yeah, one thing I, I, I noticed. I totally... I would, I'd be interested in what Paul has to say about it, but I, I would totally agree with that. I think that it's the distraction, the fact that they have access to all this safety information. You want to get paranoid about being overly safe? 
you know, get like, you know, a pimple on your chin and go investigate it on WebMD. Definitely think cancer. Of cancer within 20 minutes. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely cancer. Yeah. So I think now I think we're talking. I mean, I, I think that like there's a predisposition that's underneath it that is primal, right? Uh, but and then on top of it, you've got this frosting of clickbait, you know, safety, you know, you know, like, hey, here's how your kid's going to be fair, you know, going to be uh, balanced and happy. That's not good clickbait. If you yeah. don't do this, your kid's going to die. That's, that's great clickbait. clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the frosting on the cake. But I think the cake is the predisposition. But I when you start to put it that way, uh, Jared, I think it's a very uh, astute. And I mean, it's interesting. I'd like to hear from uh, the Green Beret. Oh, I don't. Paul, please don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Paul. We, you know, we're talking about the subject of toughness. Well, and this falls in Paul's kids yeah. are in this age group, and I know Paul didn't raise his kids in this in the way that we're talking, you know. But Paul, yeah, you—they're little Delta Force fighters. They've got—I <laughs> didn't raise my—I didn't raise, listen. Any quality that comes out of my children all came from my wife. So, oh, yeah, you need, we need to be assessing, you know, where where she came from. But no, we talk to them all the time. I mean, it it requ- you need to be invested. I mean, you need to give a shit. I mean, and you have to have adult conversations with them. And look, I'm not gonna lie. I'm squishier than Christine when it comes to worrying about those kids, you know, quote unquote, getting hurt in any way, you know? Uh, well, that's not true. Some ways I'm, I'm a little harder in some ways she's a little softer and vice versa. Um, but we have done the hard work of saying they, they're not going to be good people if they, if they don't understand the value of a little hard work. I don't know. I hope I didn't. Um, but I, I think I mentioned this, um, if not on the discussion, no, I don't think you did before. Tell us, yeah, tell us. Tell no, us no, I did because I remember. I remember hearing about it when I when I made Paul uh, do that volunteer gig with my buddy who's uh, who's uh, remodeling houses in Paul, North Carolina. Is your son? Yeah, my my seventeen year old. Okay. And I Alleged, made, you know, allegedly, yeah, we haven't like, had the yeah. test come back yet. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not black. He's not <laughs> black. But I know he's my son. Uh, uh, we were yeah, we 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 were having that we were having that conversation this morning. We were talking about both boys being from North Carolina, and Christine was like, uh, and Christine said, she said, uh, well, I mean, Paul was conceived in Kentucky. She's like, I think you were deployed. <laughs> Because <laughs> I've been deployed to much. But no, you know, um, and so, you know, I, I had him volunteer and it was, dude, it was miserable. And it was 90 degrees and they were in isolation up to their neck all day. He did it for like three days and he hated every minute of it. And I was like, hey, man, you, these are the, you have to do these things. The school of hard knocks is a real school. You guys need to go through it. Um, but it's not, look, I, I'll tell you, it, you know, it's, it is not easy, man. It is not easy to do the hard work. If you want to raise good kids, it's it's Christine says it all the time. Parenting is not for the weak. And it's certainly not if you're going to do it right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I I think we've done a pretty good job at uh, at letting I, them I, learn I, the I, hard I, way. I, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, do you sit down three, four five nights a week and have dinner together as a family? Yes. Every night. I'm on the I'm the cook. Um, I, I cook dinner and uh, pretty much every night except tonight. Tonight's pizza night. But we still lost together. How about you, Jared? Uh, no, this is an area that we need to fix. Um, this is something I I'm want us to. Call you out. No, no, and I, I was gonna, I was gonna say it anyway. I was like, hey, you know, I mean, there's things we're talking about in this conversation. I was like, I'm guilty of that, you know, yeah. unintentionally. I'm guilty the of that. Thing is that I think that Paul is very unusual, in a good way, uh, and uh, and I also think that he probably has to work, and he and his wife both have to work their tail off to accomplish that now maybe they've have it systemized now and their kids are used to it 
I was visiting one of my classmates not long before lockdown. I was in London for a conference and I went to see one of my old friends and he has like a, maybe a nine-year-old daughter. Uh, uh, and uh, she had no social media, no phone and no interest in it. And, uh, and I talked, what was her, what's her name? So no, 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 I'm going to get her name wrong. I and mean, he's going to listen to the show and be mad at me, British guy. And I said to her, you don't have a phone? Your friends have phones? And she said, all of them. All of them have phones. <laughs> and uh, and I said, uh, yeah. well, don't you want one? I don't need that in my life. Yeah. You know, I'm not interested. And, um, and I thought it was coming from her. I mean, she was very bright. But I also think that that probably came from her because of her parents sitting around the dinner with her at the dinner table, engaging with her and, and, and being engaged in practical engagement. So I'd be curious, Paul, for you, A, was that something that was hard to create? And B, um, was it hard to maintain or is it hard to maintain? Or once you created it as a ritual within your family and the military is, is uh, very um, uh, connected to the concept of ritual, right? In a good way. Um, and when, once you created it, is it easy to maintain once it's created as a system? Yeah, so, so a couple things about that. Um, we, boy, we grappled a lot with the notion of the kids having phones. And then we convinced ourselves that we were more comfortable with the, the safety mechanism, being able to reach them and not, you know, not discounting this technology that would help us track that kid down if he were somewhere, just being able to, you know, to, to talk to him. So we grappled with that a lot. Um, we never, you know, they don't have Facebook accounts. Um, I think Paul has an Instagram account because he uses it to sell his tables. I told you about the tables. Facebook accounts that they wanted. I, I, we would have to have a very serious discussion about it because we don't think it's banned. worth them having it. It's banned. Yeah, but uh, yes, but uh, I don't know that we ever said no. You can't have it. Like they okay, just kind of okay. naturally arrived that they weren't interested in it. Um. And, there, and, you know, we and we establish a lot of ground rules. Obviously, you know, if anybody nobody's taking out their phone at the table or heads are going to get cracked, you know, I mean, they don't. So they don't do that. So kind once of stuff. you have it established as a system, I guess this is what I'm getting at. Uh, does everyone like it now? Because whether you know it or not, and this is like I kind of cover this in my book, in that book, the world is out there in my kid's book, which is not out yet, is this kid just wants to be on his phone. At one point, the character that's trying to get this kid to go out there, the world is out there. The world is out there. The lizard. The lizard. Um, he gets the kid to think about going on summer vacation. And the kid says, you know, he really didn't want to go. But once he was out there for two days, he was immersed in his own physical, corporal humanity. And he was way happier. And that's when he starts to get the kid to think about it a little differently and to turn and that, that part in the story. So, um, so I guess my question is, you know, because you, you, you did the work and you know, one of the things you said is, you know, we really grappled, right? I think that's the first step is parents need to be grappling over it. There's no wrong, perfect, right answer, perfect, wrong answer, but it has to be a constant discussion, a constant dialectic, a constant weighing, and right there, just right there, um, you'll get massive improvement. Far too many parents, you know, you, you see them in a restaurant, they have a two and a half year old. I remember the first time I saw this 10 years ago, I couldn't believe it. I saw somebody that was a two and a half year old kid, a toddler, could barely talk. And they sat down to eat and just handed the kid an iPad, like it was nothing. And the kid just went to town on it, right? So 
I don't, I don't, I didn't get the idea that that those parents were. Not, I'm not judging them. You know what I mean? But I, I get, I get, the, I don't get the idea that those parents were grappling. So the grappling part is the first step, way, way, way. But now that you do this every night, and you sit and you talk as a family, and no one brings their phone out. What is that experience like for you and your family? What is that experience like for your children? Wouldn't they be having a better time playing Angry Birds? No, that, no, I, I can't imagine that they would. And I'll, I'll tell you two, two, two things. One, um, I don't know that it's necessarily a product of my tendency towards processes, systems, and order. Because no, Christine, I wasn't, I wasn't even no, 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 but I, but it's important. It's important because yeah. I want I want to because Christine is the opposite, right? I've told you I told you before when I describe her, she's basically like I'm grays and blacks and whites, and she's an explosion of color. If there's a system or a process or a an order of things, she's like absolutely not like our garden out front you know i would rather have some trimmed hedges and you know some symmetrical bushes on each side of the stairs and she's like get the hell out i mean it's just it's some it's some black-eyed susans and and a green cedar it's just it's just mayhem right and you so train and you, okay and you train green berets right that's one of the things you do yeah 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 yeah, okay. yeah but those are unconventional forces like those guys <laughs> yeah. what, what i'm saying is that you know it's not necessarily this repetitive process base it's it's a genuine interest in 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 them right oh, so I totally that's what... got, i totally i totally got that i did not get the idea that it was it was like a some sort of machine thing no told... no 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 but, but i mean don't you think, let's be honest Paul, yeah let's have a heart a moment a moment to moment um, a, a real moment here don't you think they would be a little happier liking things on facebook and making comments on things rather than sitting at dinner bored as hell talking to you uh, probably sometimes with some no, of the was, <laughs> I'm thinking, I, I, I get, you know, what I'm, what I'm talking about is, do you feel that in these dinners, when people are sharing or you're looking at your wife or your kids are looking at you and you're talking and you're actually having a conversation, um, what is the human experience of that like compared to what they would be doing if you guys were all on your phones or they were in their room eating on their computer? Oh, uh, is there a human is there a human experience that you're experiencing as a father or as a family that is special to you? And can you describe it? Yeah, I can't. I cannot imagine the opposite of what we do, because let me tell you, it would tear. Listen, I might. So Paul 17, right? Okay, so, so, but describe it to me. Describe the quality of it. Like, what is it compared to being on an electronic device or having everybody bringing a phone to the table or just not doing it at all, which is what most people do? Oh, you go eat over there. Oh, oh you're hungry now. Right, like that's more what it is because of the distraction. It's so it's insanely gratifying to hear our boys think deeply and talk about things in a way that makes us feel like we're doing something right. Like it's it's gratifying. It's it's uh, it's um, emotional sometimes. It's heartwarming, but it's also um, quite quite bittersweet because on the one hand. You, you know, you, you miss terribly who they were as little people when you could cuddle with them. Um, but you're incredibly proud of who they're becoming. And, and at the same time, you, you, you dread the day that they are going to leave and no longer be a part of that, that moment on a regular basis. So it's, it's this incredible deep connection that you get from having those exchanges. We, and it's not just dinner time. It's like that table is a magnet. We were just having Christine went off to work. She's a teacher's assistant. I was at I was sitting down at the table 
So the boys started doing, you know, they can't do exercise at school anymore. So about a month and a half ago, they started doing workouts together in the morning. So they go do their running together. Then they take their showers and then they get ready for their on, online school. So the three of us were sitting at the table. I was tinkering on something. And we started talking about, um, you know, we started talking about the the stability, what we talked about before the show started. The, the you know, how the how I'm not. It doesn't concern me if someone votes for Trump. It doesn't concern me if someone votes for Biden. It concerns me if someone's fearful of the outcome. And then we had this very rich conversation about what does that mean and the stability of our system and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, just the fact that 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 I'm rambling about it in the way that I am should tell you everything you need to know about how that feels. How do you think it feels for them? uh, Well, they're teen boys. So they might mostly, not know for another 10 years how they yeah, yeah, feel, yeah, you know? Oh, no, that, yeah. no, no, that's a great – that is a huge, huge point, Jared, right? Which is – look, let me tell you something else. Again, I, Jesus, I am not an expert on parenting. Boy, that, that's – that's oh, you the, are I am not. not. You, yeah. Christine, Christine is. <laughs> but let me tell you this. The one thing I can tell you is absolutely true. All the work you do now is not going to pay off for a long time. It's just It just doesn't work that way. It is a selfless investment, and it has to be because they're going to be teenagers and they're going to be sullen and do it, you know, driven by hormones. And all they're thinking about is, you know, that that girl in math class, because that's what we're wired. Do you want to talk about 200,000 years of evolution? <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're, you know, so they're going to ha- they're going to go through all that. So that that payoff isn't going to come for a long time. But generally, you know, they, they have fun. They laugh. They, they think they they and they and and the beauty of it more than anything is that. And I, I may have mentioned this to you, Jamie, definitely Jared and I have talked about it. When we were having this whole conversation about COVID, I was, we were early on, we were talking about masks. We were having a conversation and Paul had independent thoughts of his own that he believed and he defended those thoughts and those arguments in a rational, reasonable way. And I was like, you know what, this is, ever, and, 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 you know. I said to Christine the other day, we all went, we all went for a, uh, we all went for a walk together. Uh, there's a, we discovered a new track in the next town over where they closed down a golf course and they, the parks department took it over. So it's like mile and a half track. We all headed out there on Saturday morning. And as Paul and Benjamin left in my truck and Christine and I were with the dogs in the van, I said, man, there goes everything that matters in that truck together. You know what I mean? Thinking like, oh my God, how could well, let, me, let me, let me put a bow on that for you real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in Portland, so I'll put a bird on it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think what you said is really profound and how I would kind of sum that up is because you've done this, um, your your children are going to live much happier, deeper, richer, more human connected lives. And you know that that is something that's going to flower and unfold because you've made human connection a priority over electronic connection. I think really that's what you're saying. And maybe you're not going to see it fully right now, but you are going to see it in 10 years in your grandchildren. And you're, going to, you're creating a, a legacy of more deeply human connection rather than this kind of paranoia, aggression, rage, angst that so much of us are feeling that we're not talking about because we're not doing that. Uh, and and I think that the, the real poignant part of, of what you said is it's selfless and it's the long game. It's going to pay off generationally. It's going to pay off over a decade. It's going to pay off over five years. And you may not even see it start to pay off for five or ten years, but it's going to pay off big time. And uh, I think that that's very powerful. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, 
It's it's. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you another it's, thing. It's, that... it's, a, it's a great conversation. It's not a conversation. It's the first time I've had this conversation, so it's a really interesting conversation to have. Right? Well, I'll tell you another component of that that I think is unique to again to to my wife, not me, is that we have a, a 17 and a 14 year old who have never, in the history of their entire existence, come to blows. Never, not one time. And I credit all of that to Christine, who would never tolerate it. And 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 her perspective has always been, you can be united against your father, you can be united against me, but you will never be united against one another. You know, again, for the long-term investment. Isn't that... They have to... De- oh, no, no, right. sorry. Finish your thought, because I was going to... Well, I love that, because I think that's the first time I've ever heard you say that. Because I had the same mentality with my boys and they're three years apart you know they they love each other to death they're only six and nine so we're on a different you know in a different range here but it is something that uh both my wife and i have really you know i've actually used this uh with my wife i've told her i said hey look you know i'm okay being the common enemy at this point i want them you know because they're going to need each other for you know this has to be a bond that we nurture like you said, you guys can be united against me, against your mom, uh, but don't turn on each other, right? So like when one of them, my kids, I've just realized this, they almost, they hardly ever tell on each other anymore because I started weeding that out early on. You know, I said, listen to me, I'm going to be really clear here. I, you know, I'm and I, have, I'm not going to have snitch kids. Yeah, I was like, I was like, sni- I was like, snitches get stitches in this house. Do you understand me? I took the whole anti-fragility thing to the max. I was like, snitches get stitches. I was like, so, you know. That turns us to, you know, that turns us to uh, the the incredible moral leadership that we see in terms of our country and the future of our country right now. I'm so excited about both prospects. Well, and one of them has COVID now, which, you know, Paul... That's the thing I said at the beginning. That's and that's the conversation I had with the boys this morning is that, you know, for a while what I was saying was and Jared's wife took me to task on this and my friend Joe took me to task on this last night and Jared a little bit when I said, hey, look, I don't think you're stupid if you vote for Trump and I don't think you're stupid if you vote for Biden. I think you're stupid if you think it's going to make that much of a difference. And and people kind of took exception to that saying, hey, man, I, I you know, I, I care if it makes a difference. And I so I kind of revamped the way that I thought about that. Because what I was really thinking and, 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 and concerned about and what I brought up with the boys is, if I, if I already said it a few minutes ago, um, I want to talk to you about it, Jamie, is, is uh, I, I, don't, I don't care if you vote for Trump and I don't care if you vote for Biden, but I care if you're fearful about either outcome. Because I think that, I think that the biggest problem we have now as it relates to the election is this I, idea. I'm, I'm fearful. I'm fearful. Well, and here's and here's what I and here's here's my here's my challenge to that. So, the system we have, in my opinion, and again, you know, neither one of us, certainly Jared, not Jared, nor I, well, more not Jared than me, but um, our you know our, our political scientists or historian, <laughs> although we both have a degree in that, but that right. means nothing. It means yeah. nothing. Um, but I, I believe that our system is designed to weather bad things, whether it's a bad leadership. Um, a bad process, you know, a, a bad um, bureaucracy, whatever it is, it's designed to weather that. I mean, what they built was so clever because they said, look, we're going to make that we're going to trade. We're going to trade speed for stability so that it takes a long time. It, number one, you've got to bring every mechanism of change together 
to make radical quick change. And if by some fluke of fate, you are able to bring all the mechanisms together to make that radical change, well, then the system is designed to move so slowly that it won't change in the way they want no matter what. And then and then if it's not what the people want, then they'll be able to make an adjustment in two years or four years. Like yeah. the system that they designed was so clever. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, I do think, again, I, and I'm not a, you know, so I, 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 have, I have a degree in economic history, so, but I, I wouldn't consider myself a historian by any stretch of the imagination. I do think that, uh, you know, with, when you have uh, one of the guys kind of feathering the nest, talking about, you know, uh, we, this this voter thing, you know, we, you know, we've got the modern version of the hanging chad is like mail-in ballots. You know, I don't know if I'm going to trust it. And you can't really tell, are you going to, you know, are you going to respect the election results? Well, it depends on the mail-in votes, right? So and you can't really tell. He's so good at manipulating the media. You can't really tell if he's saying that because um, he's trying to stay in the news cycle. Or you can't tell if he's saying that because he really means that he's thinking about undermining democracy if he's not happy with the outcome, right? So that's a little bit different. I don't think in, in, in all of our history we've had a president intimate to the fact, intimate that they may not respect uh, the electoral outcome, right? Even in that case where uh, Al Gore won the popular vote and he probably won the electoral college, he still stepped aside when the decision was made, even if it was a partisan decision, right? So. Um, and I don't know if I said this, you know, the last time uh, on the show, so if I'm repeating myself, you know, I apologize. But I think that when you long for the warm and fuzzy, you know, um, bunny rabbit days and cotton candy days of George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, uh, you know something might be wrong. And, you know, so there's, you know, so there's, you know, like, God, weren't those, weren't those the good old days when we were, you know, invading companies based on false pretenses and we were manipulated tricked and lied to and then it was proved and then dick cheney made hundreds of millions of dollars on it god that was worth, those were the great days and and then torture you know uh, enhanced interrogate torture was started to be called enhanced interrogation and for the first time in american history we were publicly promoting the fact that we could enhance interrogate people and donald Rumsfeld, he was on tv and he was like yeah, I stand in my office 20, 12 hours a day. What's the big deal of making someone stand all day? Okay? Um, but like those the good old days, right? You know something maybe is a little different and maybe is a little wrong. And then you so, have, on the, and again, I don't, on my personally, I'm not a political person. On the other side of it, um, uh, uh, the other side of it uh, is almost equally scary. So the, so the thing, so, so the reason I say it is because the thing that matters to me is assuaging the fear of people that I care about, right? So, and so when I look at, I mean, you make, you make, you, you kind of almost make the point. And the, and the way that I try to describe it to people is I say, okay, look, I want you to think about your life, the totality of it. And you, I mean, man, you've got, I mean, you've got great, you've got, you've got great highs and lows in your life. I mean, really extreme ones, right? Yeah. So I want you to think about the highs and I want you to think about the lows. And I want you to think about the triumphs and I want you to think about the failures. And I want you to think about all the things that mattered to you in your life. And I want you to template that out. And then I want you to template on top of that the presidential administrations that coincided with that timeline. And what I will tell you is that I've lived through 10 administrations. I was born in the Johnson era. Shut your mouth, Jerry. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I've lived, and I can tell you that I cannot connect any dots between any president and things that mattered in my life. And, and people will be like, oh, okay, 
yeah, Paul, you you were privileged, so you don't have to worry about which president really privileged. Let me tell you something. Clinton sent me to war. Bush sent me to war. Obama sent me to war. Trump sent me to war. You're they welcome. So, so you can take your you can take your privilege and jam it straight up your ass, unless you want to join me on the front lines. So, 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 so. My, but my point in all that is like, hey, man, step back and think about what effect they've really had. Yeah, the ship tilts a little to the left and it tilts a little to the right, and it affects you in you know in small ways that are you know can they could be catastrophic. But generally speaking, whoever that dipshit is really doesn't affect the things that matter in your life if you look at it over the, you take the long view of it. Um, yeah, that, okay, okay, so here, here would be my counter to that. And again, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not to... Uh, no, no, I want to hear okay. it. Okay. Um, I remember watching the news one day during the Bush-Cheney administration uh, during the whole Iraq war debacle and all of this talk of uh, enhanced interrogation, you know, what I was just talking about. And... Um, there was a belligerence to it, and uh, they were, I forget who they were interviewing. It wasn't Paul Begala, but it was some political commentator on the Democratic side, and they made a really good point. Um, I think the point was, you know, and my British friends, I, I, I say this to my friends in England because I, you know, my, I went to college in England, so I'll say this to them, and they tease me when I say this, but I'll say, you know, America is a symbol, right? It represents hope represents everything that the world can be even in, in, in and again going to college in england being an american um there's a lot of anti-american sentiment about foreign policy i'm a rare undergrad student at an international university i was dealing with a lot of anti-american vibe but even when they're hating you they slightly admire you you're the american it's a weird thing right so they're asking this guy about you know uh um, the effects of this political commentator on the effects of uh, of um, all, all, all of this kind of war and manipulation and lying and, and really about the torture or it was they call it enhanced interrogation um, uh, and he said listen uh, you know America is a symbol and when America goes dark the world goes dark okay and I thought that I think there's truth in that I think that as long as we're representing the right things, and I'm sure we do things behind closed doors that are gross and disgusting, but we weren't actively coming out and saying in the mainstream, yeah, uh, torture is cool. That was new. And I think that uh, around the world that was dangerous. And, and uh, so then, you know, flash forward to today, and you have, and again, neither one of these guys, I have no interest, I mean, I have no interest in either one of these guys, okay? Um, but uh, uh, and, and, I, and I don't have some universally like negative thing to say about Trump. He's a human being. I want him to do well. I'm living under his, you know, his uh, reign. I was like reign, regime, administration. <laughs> you know, I want him to do well. And I don't see everything he does as bad. I'm not some like uh, I have friends that support Trump. And uh, I, I don't and I don't really there's a lot of reasons somebody might support Trump that have nothing to do with what kind of human being they are. Right. And I'm most concerned with what kind of human being you are. I know a lot of crazy people on the other side of the coin that are not good human beings, but they are the virtue party. Right. And I don't believe in any of that. I just look at what kind of person you are and try to stay out of the politics. But when you have a guy and he's on the news and he's belligerent. Right. You know, he's like bad on breaks. They're not sending their best. Right. 
uh, we're going to build a wall. Like it's constantly going to the negative, constantly going to the lowest common denominator. When we are a symbol, as my friend Paul, who lives in Birmingham, would say, yeah, mate, you're the shining city on the hill. <laughs> right? He's just pissed because they used to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we are the shining city on the hill. Right? So um, uh, when, when, you, when you, that level of belligerence, I think, creates uh, an anxiety all over the planet. I think it makes people feel unstable. I think it gives them anxiety. So I think that your argument is the sound argument, Paul. It's sane. It's rational. And I think there's a lot of truth in what you say. But I think this constant, like, what's he going to say next? What's he going to do? Um, and I don't necessarily think that's going to be fixed by a guy that uh, it seems like a real politician. And, you know, on the other side of the coin, I don't even want to go on and on about the other side of it. Because the other side of it, I could, you know, uh, he seems too old. He seems too white. He seems too disconnected. And he seems too um, in the corporate pocket. Okay. I mean, you know, when the whole, and again, like, you know, I said something, I actually false spoke on the last show when we were talking about the hydrochloroquine thing. And I said, you know, he's not taking hydrochloroquine. But then I saw this piece on YouTube with Dr. Drew talking about hydrochloroquine is about as controversial as aspirin. And then he was saying how Dr. Drew, who's probably left, was saying how it doesn't matter what this is how partisan we've gotten. It doesn't matter what Trump says. If he says it, the liberal, the, the liberal media, corporate media is going to say the opposite. And it's that constant contention and, and things that drives the, the ratings, you know, like, and that was the same when Obama was in. Obama could endorse the sun and the Republicans would go, no, the moon. It doesn't matter what he was doing and uh, what it was about, right? Um, uh, so I, I think that, you know, but even like, you know, when, when this whole thing was, you know, Trump says all the things, says things all the time that if I'm not listening to the talking heads, I don't disagree with him. You know, he's brought a lot of prisoners back home. Maybe that was for narcissism. Uh, uh, foreign, you know, he's let a lot of people out of jail that were, had been rotting in there for a long time. Maybe that's narcissism. I don't know. He's still doing it. And he says things, he doesn't always say things that are completely unreasonable. And there's plenty of times where I go, um, that's, that's reasonable. But, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, Dr. Drew's point was like the only reason they were coming out against the hydrochloroquine, which is less controversial than an aspirin, uh, people take it when they go to, you know, a foreign country as an anti-malaria drug, is because he said it. So mm -hmm. I miss um, on that point. Uh, so I guess, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of where I was going with this. I, my, okay, I was going to say, like, you know, if you go on, I just remember during the whole kind of Biden um uh ukraine uh impeachment process right biden's son uh with the energy companies and i don't think we talked about this in the last show but i just remember like the talking heads and how they were just crazy about you know trump and you know street you know putting the arm behind the back of the president of ukraine Zelensky, and 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 you know i kind of thought god don't all presidents do that maybe they don't get caught on tape doing it but like hey i'm giving you 300 million dollars I, I just had a hard time believing that. Me and Paul were just talking about that, yeah. A common thing, and, and I, even though I didn't think it was necessarily right, it didn't seem insane to me. It did get kind of compoundedly crazy when that country that we're strong-arming for the $300 million is at war with our nemesis, who our president is praising their autocratic leader. That started to get a little weird. But none of it was as weird as the vice president's son 
making millions of dollars on energy boards in Eastern European countries, former Iron Curtain countries that were only recently in the last 30 years privatized. Um, and what does Hunter Biden know about it? You know, like why that to me seemed far stranger that he was over. So there. let me. Yeah. So let, so let me get let me let me go back to continuing to attempt to assuage your fear. Okay. And here's what here's what I would tell you. Um, and why I think that that the person that's in that office is not as 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 meaningful as as the media is making us believe, because when your British friends, and I, and I think the anecdote is the same as everything else, when your British friends, bemoan the fact you know that if the light goes out in America, the light goes out in the world. Now they mock what, me for saying that. But, right, but, right, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. But, but, but yeah, but, yeah. But, but when they, they believe it at the same time. Right, it. but when they express their concerns, what is the thing? that gives them faith. And, and I'll tell you what I think it is. It's their relationship with you. And they say, but Jamie's American and he's a great guy. Like it's, it, it's the same, it's the same anecdote. It's the human connection that undermines all that bullshit that everybody's being convinced is, you know, again, Rome is burning. It's like, nope, that's that, that all of that can be, I think. And, and again, and I would agree, but I feel like the digital world is undermining that human connection factor in a way that we don't even understand. But I, I, I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be kicking little because I don't want to do what they're doing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the media is doing. I, I'm not trying to be kicking little, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is that even though both of these men represent nothing that I want anything to do with generally, okay? I don't believe oh, uh, anything out of what they, you know, it's hard to, you know, I don't know what's true. There's no, I, I don't feel like anything is fact checkable anymore. Okay. In my news feed, I just get fed what I search. So I'm only being fed what I already believe. I, I you know, I'm not a, that's pretty obvious to me. Okay. Um, but I do think that uh, if there was a person, no matter how incompetent uh, in the office, that wasn't constantly being negative and belligerent and pooping on people from the developing world, pooping on Islam, you know, I, you know, like that's been, that's been really difficult for me. I mean, I was in the dorms. It was a huge percentage of my dorm was Islamic, right? I live with these guys, right? I had dinner with these guys every night, right? And so even the way that the liberal media, some of, their, some of their hands. Yeah. Even the way the liberal media talks about Islam in, in, in this country, it makes me sick because, um, you know, you can go do that with both religions or any religions. If you want to talk about like ex people, ex people in extreme religions um, doing, you know, if there's 1.5 billion Muslims and there's estimates between 26,000 and 250,000 radicals, that number of extremists is so far below 1% that we don't even, we, that wouldn't even show up as corollary on a social study. Right. Okay, but that's not the way even the liberal media portrays it. The Muslim ban, based on those numbers, I mean that—that's absolute uh, madness. And when you and then when you flip it over to the white side or white people, because Muslim Islam is the brown religion, right? And there's okay, 1.5 billion Muslims. What is there? Two billion Christians? 2.5 billion Christians? Um, but like you know, we have this mass Holocaust of Catholic priests. Um, abusing uh, young boys all over the world. And when that happens to you as a young boy in that manner, from somebody that's your priest, it's there to protect you, in a lot of cases, you're, you've destroyed that person's life. They're basically entombed in their own pain until they die. So they're like a lot of 
kids that that happens to. They're the walking dead after that, right? We don't hear that same argument. Well, God, you know, if it wasn't for this Christianity thing, this Holocaust of molested children would have never occurred. But we're very comfortable talking in those terms when the numbers are smaller and it's brown people, right? So, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting stuff. I, I kind of went off on a-, a No, a, I like, a, I like. well, one thing to, to reinforce your point, um, I, uh, I had the dubious distinction of, of going to a Catholic church where the priest was a, was a pioneer in the field um, of molesting children. And, uh, and one of the guy, one of the, one of the men, one of the boys that he molested, um, uh, I knew him as a teenager and he killed himself 40 years later. Like you said, like he was in, you know, he was entombed in that, in that fear and that pain. Yeah. Um, so to, to reinforce that point, but anyway, um, so, but, so but I, I do, like, yeah, yeah. Well, but I, I I like the fact that you're you know you're being a little bit of chicken little and challenging some of these ideas and questioning because what I want people to hear more than anything else is if we do this look Jared nothing is ever going to come from the best pandemic ever podcast we're two idiots people are eventually going to see us for what we're worth never and underestimate the power <laughs> of an idea uh, never was, underestimate yeah, Paul. the power of an idea <laughs> I think that you guys can be this could be one of the biggest podcasts in the world as long as i'm a guest every single week part three you just solidified hey, part three it's done part three's part three's um, coming yeah so that being said i'm i'm just i i don't like either choice i'm horrified by either choice but i would i could use the relief of not having just the constant negativity uh, uh, beamed out at us, just someone that's not, you know, like, you know, I grew up in Mexican neighborhoods in LA. They're not sending their best. You know, they are sending their best. These yeah. guys work their asses off. Yeah. And I was asked in an interview recently, how come you were over able to overcome things and poverty and certain amounts of degradation and humiliation when other people weren't illiteracy? Well, one thing I learned very young growing up in Mexican neighborhoods is that hard work is not a monitor for success. Because if hard work were a monitor for success, uh, Mexican gardeners would be billionaires. Absolutely. So they're not oh, yeah. sending their best. I saw people working their asses off with incredible family values, showing up, working at 5 a.m., coming home late at night, and being all about their families and their children. You know, that wasn't, I mean, I also grew up with Mexican gangs in my neighborhood. That was not the majority. The majority, they are sending their best. The people that want to come here, the people that will get here by any means necessary, um, they want a better life for themselves. They want a better life for their children. And those are attributes that are indicative of somebody's best. So, number one, I agree with you. I have yet to meet a an immigrant, especially from South America, who isn't hardworking, decent, kind, courteous, all those things. I have a, So that statistic I, I have I have never met somebody that I would characterize as a piece of shit. That has not not yet happened. Bad hombres. But, you haven't met any bad hombres. Nope. Haven't met okay. any 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 bad hombres. Not once. <laughs> and, but but what I was going to say about you know the you, you know about the best pandemic ever is that if we can get if in these conversations we get one person, we get a singular person who says, huh, you know what? I'm going to just turn that shit off and go go out and connect with somebody like that to me would be worth the investment in what in what we're doing here because that's what's coming out of these conversations is you know if you get right down to it it's this it's this repetitive reinforcement of this idea that all that noise is bullshit 
and you know there it it's it's not it's not a true depiction of how the world actually is and if you just get out in the world and see how it actually is i mean you wrote a whole book about it it's our ethos when we talk about why this pandemic is so so great uh you know that that will that will assuage so much of that angst and it's just as simple as and i i get i get it i'm oversimplifying things but it's just as simple as just shutting some of that shit off no. and you don't have it doesn't have to be 100% look my kids play video games all the time and then, you know, and they are on their phone talking to their friends and texting. It's not like we don't do it at all. It doesn't have to be. All, it's not binary. It's not all or nothing. You know, you can have you can have balance, but it has to be that I think people just kind of have to, you know, wake up to it just just a little bit. Jared, do you agree with what Paul's saying? Yeah, well, I I, uh, I do um, not 100 percent just because uh, I don't want anybody to get the idea that I'm, you know, like Paul's bitch or anything but uh you know that's really important so no but i i so the way i look at it at a big picture of this conversation is that the concern because paul and i've gone back and forth on this as well i agree with the fact that in retrospect we're going to look back and say well did these administration changes what kind of impact did they really have on on my life but i think that's a i think that's a future looking backwards right because we can look back but it's but i do believe there's uh, I am also concerned just it's it's more about the what you talked about, the mental problems that are associated with isolation and that being turned up to 11. And then the current situation we see right now with uh, with the president, because I'm with you, I, I, I think I think he's an embarrassment. I really do. Yeah, yeah but, but this, conver- this conversation of getting out into the world, you like rather than well, the that's, conversation of of technology is bad right i'd rather have a conversation of what paul is doing right around the dinner table about getting out in the world like during the heart of covid there were certain municipal parks when oregon was shut down there were city parks that weren't shut down i was at them three four days a week staying sane right so you know like having the conversation of and that's what i think hopefully we're doing on the show is having a conversation of you know, what should we be doing? What can we do rather well, than what's bad? Exactly. Well, that, and those questions really come down to this, is that I, I do believe that on, on a macro scale in the United States, we are we have a crisis of identity. We're trying to figure out. And so I actually see all this as a positive. Right. Uh, so if I try to say, well, here's the positives of what we've been seeing over the past few administrations, because, this, you know, with Trump and all this divisiveness, that's not new. Like this has been going on really since you know Bush and Cheney, and then the Obama administration, and then with Trump, just this buildup of the media's commentators and the punditry stoking this partisanship. So it's yeah, forced yeah. us into this, and then Trump gets elected, and now you've got more people politically active. Whether we agree with all of them or not, it, it doesn't really matter. You've got more people paying attention than you ever have inside the United States, which is going to be messy, of course, when you're kind of just waking up. It's like waking up out of a dead sleep and all of a sudden somebody throwing you the keys and saying you need to drive this car now like you're going to be stumbling around like oh wait how do i drive this car what, what exactly is it i'm going to do so i think what we have to realize first and foremost is that we can look at all of this as as a state where if we just listen to the media it's like, oh everything's falling apart and it's going to be awful but we have to understand the media is always going to be pretty shitty Right. So if we just understand that it was like, OK, that's what they are. So like Paul was saying, you can just turn it off. I mean, when I've when I've gone on, you know, uh, a media fast unintentionally, a lot of times it's just, man, I'm busy. I don't have time to hear this stuff. I realized, oh, interesting. I had no idea what the president said or what's going on in the world around me at the moment. And I am incredibly happy. Uh, 
I think we yeah, understand. Turn it off at the beginning yeah, of so I think we, number one walking. is we have we have control to turn it off and just and tune out. Does it mean that you should be uninformed? No, but I also think that on a on a big scale here, and I, I take hope from this, is that we have more people paying attention than they ever have. So I heard the statistic the other day, or not statistic, that it was about the number of mail-in ballots or people that have already voted in early voting. So far, it was over a million people in the in the country, and they said. Compare that to this time last year for the 2016 election, it was only 9,500 people. So a million compared to 9,500, that's how many people have already voted. I was like, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible because it's pretty sad. You know, what's interesting is when I, the takeaway that I'm getting from this, Paul and Jared, is that, you know, we need to focus on what's important. Yeah. And, and, and what, what's important is what unites us. If there's a, 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 a Christian church-going grandma Trump supporter in Iowa or Kansas, and I meet her on a road trip across the country, do I want to focus and talk to her about um, Roe v. Wade and uh, gun control? And, you know, I mean, not, she and I might stand the same way on those things. I'm not even telling you, I'm not right. trying to give away a political stance. Um, or do I want to focus on what I have in common with her? And I think the, the, the media is, uh, corporate media is, uh, played a trick on us and has been socializing us and inuring us to focus on what's different about us. Mm -hmm. And even the person that's the most different from like a mixed guy from urban Los Angeles, um, I have more in common with a white grandma from Iowa that would support Trump far more in common as a human being than I have that's different about us. So I think the takeaway that I, I want to kind of walk away with so that I'm not being chicken little, Paul's moved me today, Dr. Paul, he's moved me. Twice, uh, man, I, yeah. look at this. Uh, is, uh, it's a bowel movement. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he's moved me. He's moved me. Um, is that, you know, kind of what I'm getting from Paul and, you know, Paul, and I'm feeling better is that um, let's focus on what we have in common. Let's focus on being physically connecting in the physical world human connection let's focus on all the things that we agree on and uh yeah this whole concept that we can't talk to the people we disagree with that's new and that's being we're being tricked to think that that's more important than what we have in common well, by by the corporate media and you're right we and have so to I, I think the takeaway is let's not fall for the trick yeah exactly let's not yeah. Fall, you know let's yeah. not fall for the trick the politicians are playing us let's go out and hang out with that person that's the most different from us and figure out what we have in common and see what we like about them. Because you're never going to have, there's never going to be anyone that we think is a perfect person that does nothing wrong. Let's focus on what unites us because there's far more that unites us. And what for me, life has always been about curiosity. And, and if someone said, if there was one trait that allowed you to kind of overcome lots of circumstances, I would say it was curious, curiosity. Mm -hmm. if, I, if I saw somebody that I shouldn't be hanging out with that was completely different, I would be like, well, they're a human being. They've got feelings. They're sentient. I'm going to go. I'm not going to judge. I'm going to see what this person's about. And I think it gave me it gave me an exposure to learning and an exposure to connection that gave me a lot more options than I would have had if I was just like, well, they're at that. And they're at that, which is the what we're getting constantly bombarded with by the politicians. Well, exactly. So, yeah. And, and, and the, and, and, and the, the 24-hour news cycle. Well, and to add to that, too. It's really this is, is people need – we all need to remember you have a choice to turn it off. Like nobody is nobody has is, is got your eyes like 
open and, and like is forcing you to watch or consume all this stuff out there. We have a choice to buy the narrative that is being given to us by the media, or we have a choice to go out and say, hey, you know what? Um, I'm going to go talk to a human being. I'm going to go connect yeah, with actual yeah, real people. Yeah, but I think people. the way, I think the, this, respond to this, Jared. I think the way that you approach that question is really important. If I say, Paul, turn it off. Jared, turn it off. Go away from it. It sucks. It's horrible, right? That's gonna. That's one way of motivating a human being. You know, we talk about motivation through fear. Um, if I say, listen, this is what you can experience in the world by connecting with someone that has completely different views of you and focus and looks different than you, lives in a different geography from you, and here's what you might get out of that as a human being that you don't, that you don't suspect. Um, what's going to get more likely to get the outcome? What's the idea that's going to motivate people? Why? Don't do that. Get away from that. Yeah, I give it a third. Go towards, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, you're yeah. telling somebody that not to do something. And I would say that never works, especially wouldn't work with me. I know that wouldn't work with Paul. If you tell me not to do something, then I'm now immediately <laughs> going like, oh, well, eat shit. I'm going to do it. Right. You know, unless you're like, don't do heroin. I don't know that I'd necessarily go. I'm going to watch Rachel Maddow for 72 hours straight. That would be torture. <laughs> torture. <laughs> No, but, but but I think it's I think this is what it comes down to. And certainly well, back qualifies torture seventy two hours of Rachel Maddow unstopped. Would that would that would that be would that go beyond enhanced interrogation or would that fall into the category of a of a torture experiment? I'll have to review the policy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Well here so this this is what I think it comes down to. It, and it circles back to the beginning of our conversation. And uh, I'm just teasing Rachel Maddow. If I, you know, I love you. Okay. So, yeah, because Rachel listens to the show. Yes. But it's this idea that uh, we have to give people the freedom to make choices. Right. So the overarching theme is this is to approach it like to say, listen, you can you can watch the media. You can watch the news. You can take all this stuff. You can do whatever you want. You've got unlimited access to stuff. But you but you have to understand you you made that choice. You have to own it. Right. So like if you, you can't blame anybody for feeling a certain way, for not experiencing life, you can't do that. So you have a choice. I think if you present, say you have a choice to do this, nobody's forcing you to do any of this in the same way. Nobody's forcing you to turn it off. And, you know, if I turn around and then said, just think of how much better the world could be if you go and spend time with people that are different. from you, Even that I wouldn't go as far because I do believe, especially with young people, with kids, you know, I mean, unless you were in just a completely isolated situation, which, you know, is not far off. Um, we are going to find people that are different than us. And even those of us that... Hey, hey. Ho, exactly, ho. right? Yeah, yeah, I know that hurts. That hurts. Yes, yeah, shout, shout down my I, hate speech. You know, I only said that because, <laughs> hey, hey, ho, ho. Jared Nichols has got to go. Hey, hey. It actually has a good run to it. Ho, ho. I feel like point. you're over-asserting as a white man on me right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, don't <laughs> don't worry, man. I've got microaggression. Man, oh, I've been micro-validating you. Oh, it's Paul. true. It's, this, this proves my white ability. I insulted him. And he's getting yeah. upset, which means he's fragile. That's so shocking to me. I am. You know, I the, I do, you I know the other thing that's so easy to, to – so, so, like – No, can I say the, one thing? I want to yeah, yeah. disagree with Jared in one way. Maybe this we can start to bring it towards my book a little bit. And I, I don't only want to bring it – I'm happy to not talk about my book, but if we promise the listeners we talk a little bit about it, then I'm happy to talk about it. Maybe we can go into the ideas of standing out as an individual and a human through talking about these social issues. But – one of the I, I do believe one of the areas where I would disagree with you. And you know what? I'm going to disagree with you on something. And I'm still going to admire the shit out of you and be your friend and not give a shit that we disagree. Don't put that uh, I pressure do, on me. I disagree with you in this sense. I do believe if we focus in a repetitive, monolithic way on what it could be like 
if we were talking to and experiencing people in person and experiencing people that we disagreed with, Alan Lincoln, the Council of Rivals, right? Why did he do that? Why did he have a Council of Rivals? Because he wanted, when he had to make a big decision, he wanted every opposing viewpoint from every angle coming at him full steam. And that, and that, and only that, is what would give him the resolve that he is. And if he still knew after all of that, his council of rivals, that he felt the way that he felt, that he knew he had been making a decision that was tested, right? Mm -hmm. So I do believe that focusing on the world out there and being in nature and connecting in the physical world and reminding ourselves that that truly is, is the joy of the human experience. And no matter how much you feel like you like the convenience of the electronic device you're connecting to us through right now, um, go do a two hour hike in the heat with somebody you like, a bro, your girlfriend, somebody you even you disagree with, but you like, okay? Um, and tell me uh, you'll feel better after that two hour hike. So I think that like being repeated and monolithic, which goes to my book about the positive, like what the supreme or pinnacle of human experience should be. What's the pinnacle of human experience? Being together physically, laughter, joy, humor, uh, being in nature as an evolutionary spe species and pushing that rather than admonishing the bad crap and pushing that in a monolithic repetitive way um, I think is the most effective way to get people to do that. I do think that is very different than saying, turn it off. Forget turning it. Yeah. This, that's my disagreement with you, Jared. Oh, now, no, no. I wasn't think... saying turn it off. What I was saying was hey, hey, just let people know, <laughs> just let people know, Hey, you can, or you can't, it's up to you. Right. Okay, I think that yeah. we have, it always comes down to this. We have to reinforce the idea of, of your freedom to choose. Because, we're, I, because I don't agree. I didn't see that's where I disagree. And again, I'm happy. Well, no, no, no. But here, here's the thing. Yes. Here's what I, here's why I'm saying that. Because okay. I think the problem is, is that everybody is being told what to do, what to believe, how to vote, what they think should, you know, like, you know, if you think that, then you are wrong. I think oh, what people I need see. to understand is that you can, you can keep doing what you want to do here if, if this is really what you want. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you live with the consequences, good and bad. So you if you think that people are reacting against being told what to do. Oh, 100 percent. OK, so that OK, I, I if you look at it like that, I think that. They yeah, this really is on a macro point. scale, right? Like, so yeah, when I, mean, I, think I think about I think real change, like people have to they have to be able to say, look, I made a choice. I made a choice to stop working at this time of day so that I could have dinner with my family every night this time of day. You know, I made a choice to stop listening to the news. Ebony, yeah, Ebony, like Ebony and Ivory, we talked and now we agree because I totally. think that what you, you know, that explains the Trump election to me. I think the Trump election, it, it wasn't, you know, I think the extreme left put Trump in office. Oh, continue. of course they did. Yeah. With and a the bad candidate. I and I, like... think working, I think working class white people in America got sick of people telling them what words they're allowed to use, how to think. And I, you know, all the word, words don't matter. We're a country. Our laws are law, our laws based off of intent. If yeah. I run you over, Jared, and it was an accident, I walk around, I go to the ice cream parlor. And yeah. you die, I go to the ice cream parlor. If I ran you over to kill you, uh, I go to jail for the rest of my life. Most of our laws are based off of this concept of intent, right? So I think we need to be far less concerned with words and, um, and far more concerned with intent. 
um, because that's really what's you know, actions and attitudes are what really matters, not the words somebody uses. Yeah. Right. You can have somebody use all the right words and they can have all the right wrong attitudes. Right. But, I, you know, I don't know if we, we want to you know, bring this around in my book or we want to just keep talking. Um, yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, we, we've been going for we've been going for for a while. Um, but, uh, you know, now, now we have an excuse to, to bring you back for a part three. Um, That's what I'm but saying. I, I, but I, I, the other the other piece to all we of that, that I would say. We haven't talked about BLM. When are we going to talk about BLM? Rogan, he goes for four and a half, seven, 12 hours. Yeah, that's true. And we yeah, and we yeah. like elk meat. So. <laughs> Paul, don't be a wuss. Yeah. Yeah. What are you so, saying? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the other thing that I would add to all of that is that everything that we're describing is way easier than people are being told that it is. Because I think, I know, that this idea that we are more divided than ever is utter bullshit. That, that, is, not, that is not the case in the real world. No, that's, like, I do being, not, that's what's being marketed to us. That's yeah. what's being fed 100%, 100%. to us. 100%. And the reason it's being fed to us is before we had the Internet, that was the only way you could get people elected if you don't have instant communication. Now that you have a society of 20 years of instant communication, people can look at nuance in a way they never could before. And, every, and we have a much more sophisticated populace. You know, it used to be that you kind of had to be in a bucket to vote. Well, if I'm going to be anti-abortion or pro-life, then I'm also going to, you know, want to have an AR-15. I think that was true 25 years ago. I don't think people think in buckets anymore in a post-internet society. Mm-hmm. I think people are more sophisticated. But we have this system of buckets that, was, that, that got people elected for, you know, 150 years, right? 200 years so um because that system no longer works in an internet society where everyone has instant access to nuance and information the 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 corporate media system and the politicians are artificially creating that division as a means of getting people elected right i really do think that's what's going on and and you know yeah and, and again i and i will say you know what my my uh, I just can I say one thing about my book, just because I I don't want to feel like I lied when I said we talk about it. One th- only um, one thing though, man. Oh, <laughs> yeah, my geez. book is about the primal laws of what, why we pay attention to one thing and ignore another. In a world overloaded with content, anything that busy, anything that one has to think about before they have a chance to think, um, gets instantly discarded. You have to understand something in your lizard brain before you have a chance to think, or you will not engage with it. That is the result of people being overloaded with content. And um, I teach the laws of this in terms of, mostly in a positive way, how you can apply that to your art, how you can apply that to your design, your business, um, your your resume, an email to, to get buy-in from someone you want, your love, how you can apply that to your children, how you can apply that to your parents, how to come up with that, that a formula to come up with that monolithic simple thing that someone will lock on to. Um, and uh, I will say, so that's the content of my book. Um, but the main thing that you need to know is, you know, you need to have an emo- uh, anything that someone can understand before they have a chance to think they will lock on to, like a road sign or a warning label. Uh, there's a, it's an entire book, but that's the direction of it. And I will say that, uh, you know, Trump is a master iconist. I mean, I, he has, I don't think he's read my book, but he is better at coming up with that thing that kind of locks attention and repeating it over and over and, and uh, being visual uh, better than anyone I've ever seen. So, I don't, you know, he hasn't read my book. My book is based on primal laws. I didn't invent anything in it. I've just codified a pattern. But he is definitely highly aware and highly versed in that pattern. And, you know, 
maybe on a part three or I don't know now or next time uh, I can break down how he does that and I can and then I can talk about how you how that's not a pattern for bad or a pattern for good it's a pattern of human perception it's how and why we all pay attention to one why we pay attention to one. yeah and that has nothing to do with what's nefarious or not nefarious it only has to do with how human beings are comfortable locking on and paying attention to something that guy has figured it out and so i want people to be using that for good well i think that's a that would be a great thing to talk about in a part three because i know we've got to wrap up here okay uh, no problem yeah look at paul's eyes are glazing over you bored the shit out of this guy <laughs> hey hey <laughs> oh, i blacked out i blacked no, but out I, for the last 15 minutes yeah totally it's what did you say? <laughs> But I think that's a great. I think that's a great. Uh, uh, will be a great thing to talk about because we can sit here and talk for an hour and a half about all the things that we think and what we'd like to see change and whatnot. But if you know, the homework should probably be come up with a real simple way that follows those primal laws, right? You're like, if you're serious about making change, then like do the work. Make uh, you've got to sit down and think. How do you get something to stand out? How do you so that people understand? Hey, you're going to get a lot more from going outside. You're going to get a lot more from going and spending time with somebody who doesn't agree. Exactly, with you. So. exactly. And so, and also, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on promoting my book. I just like to talk. But anybody can go on my website, shoot me an email if they want to know how it works. Yeah, we'll, ha- we'll have the links for all that stuff okay, okay, in, okay. in the, uh, in the show notes. I think we've got it in the first one too. But we're going to do it in the second one, and we'll do it in the third one. All right. Well, I, right. aside from being completely uh, dominated by two white men yeah I've had the hey hey time ho ho <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> to complete I, that game <laughs> no absolutely no man no, it's your it's your fault you sent me down a rabbit hole my friend yeah sorry about that sorry yeah, about yeah, that yeah 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 so yeah so uh oh yeah. paul you're on mute man you muted yourself <laughs> i can't we can't hear you I said protest porn. That's what we're going to call this one. That's yeah. a great. Protest that's a great idea. Jamie Mustard. That Absolutely. Is, oh, I mean, that's the world we're living in that, right now. That's okay. perfect. Hey, if anything, you know, the best thing that came out of this entire episode is Paul's clever title. So, you know. <laughs> no, yeah, but I think when you're watching it, uh, know that you're being manipulated. Know that people are are feeding you this news and making it exacerbated. Whether it's COVID, whether it's the election, whether it's the protest, they're stirring you up. Because they want your eyes locked in their station. Because when they have more viewers, they get more per ad. Know that that's why they're doing it. If you go out into the world, what you're going to see is not reflective of what you're being fed. You're being being fed a very concentrated beam of negativity. And most of what's going on in the world is good and beautiful and unified. Absolutely. So that's that's my... uh, Well, and Paul, one thing we'll have to talk about on part three of this as well is I want, and I think this, and I'm being serious here, is is the, uh, is the is to expound on that idea that things are a lot easier than we're being told. Um, So, are you guys really gonna want to do a part three? I'm sick of myself. Yeah, I yeah. think we will, man. Yeah, I think we will. Nobody else wants to come on this show. See, uh, yeah, you, yeah. No, you're not supposed to tell him uh, that, Paul. Yeah, but I, and, you know, and I, and I, and again, I really do think that you know we had, you know, that we're talking about some things. There's a lot of these conversations that are being had, but I and I do a lot of shows, and and like, I'm doing several shows a week, but I'm having conversations about ideas on these shows. I don't know what it is about the, the you two guys and your backgrounds, but oh, pretty awesome. I have. We're having some conversations here. I and, and again, never underestimate the power of an idea. And I and I feel like we're talking about some ideas that I'm not hearing anywhere else, and that I'm not talking about anywhere else. And so I just really appreciate you, you guys, because I do think that has a power to it and a wave, and then it can build. So, awesome. you know, I thank you because it, it 
made my made my week. Awesome, man. Thanks. Nice. Dude. Nice, man. Well, I'm not going to say anything else. I want to just take us out on that note. So <laughs> anyway, thank you, everyone who has made it through this episode and is waiting anxiously for part three. Thank you, especially to Jamie Mustard for spending uh, some more time with thank us you. and who is now committed to part three of our show. Uh, if you have not subscribed, what a bad idea. So I, not that I want to tell you what to do, but I would highly encourage you, <laughs> highly encourage you to uh, to subscribe. And if you do, and if you don't, you have to live with the consequences of that decision. More so, you need to pass this on to your friends, to your family, people that you truly care about. You need to send this podcast to them. And uh, yeah, you need to stand by because we're going to have a part three. But in the meantime... Check for us next week on the best pandemic ever. See ya. Thanks for having me, boys.